Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's student ministry sermon. So, a few years ago, I uh, had the chance to go to the Philippines. And while we were there, we did um, a service project for a group of uh, people in the Philippines called the Bajau. And the Bajau are some of the poorest people on the face of the earth. Um, they're not even regarded by the Filipino government as being real people. They're not registered with the government. Really, no one even knows about their existence. Um, they live in stilted houses um, above the water. They don't even live on the land. They live on stilted uh, huts, stilted houses above the water. In order to get to them, we, we wanted to go uh, and give them some food and some uh, relief. We also wanted to go and tell them about Jesus. Um, in order to get to them, though, you had to cross these very narrow bridges to walk out to their huts in the water. And bridge is a kind word for what we actually walked across. It actually was um, two different two-by-fours laid side by side. Without railing or anything like that, you had to walk across these two-by-fours to get to the huts. And I'm like, all right, that's no problem. I'm, I'm fine, got a good sense of balance. I'm young. I can handle this, okay? And so... Uh, we start walking out to these huts. Now, the, the, the guide who was with us, he was a Filipino college student, great guy, great kid, um, uh, probably also weighs about 90 pounds soaking wet, okay? And so he kind of scurries across these, these uh, two-by-fours, not a problem whatsoever, and he looks back at us, following him, and he says, I just want you to know, be careful that you don't lose your balance. Be careful that you don't fall. And we're like, well, duh. He's like, no, you need to be very careful because you're walking across their WC right now. Now, in the Philippines, what you need to know is WC stands for water closet, which means bathroom. See, what they had done was that they had built this bridge of two-by-fours literally across where their toilets drained into. So at that point, I look across at our, at our guide, I look across at our college student, I said, listen, it's not that I don't believe you, it's not that I don't trust you, I mean, you've obviously proven that this is possible, I'm just in this moment right now staring at these two by fours, I've got to confess I'm having some doubts. It's just, it's not that I don't believe you, it's just that I'm having some doubts in this moment. When I was a freshman in college, I entered into one of the most difficult periods of my faith. Um, about a year and a half before I entered into college, um, my sister died in a car accident. During my freshman year of college, my grandfather passed away. Um, it was also during that first year of college where I was taking classes, classes on um, basically classes on non-Christian religions, where the entire semester we were introduced to people, whole groups of people, millions, even billions of people who believe things very different than what I believe. People who had good, maybe good reasons for believing things different than what I believe. 
And that whole series of events, losing my sister, losing my grandpa, taking these classes that were challenging me, that whole series of events sent me into this crisis of faith. And I was left in that, in that moment as a freshman in college, confused, lost, troubled. And I remember having this, this feeling, it was more of a feeling than a thought. I remember having this feeling, it's not that I don't believe, I do believe. I do believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe, but I've got to confess, I'm having my doubts. I'm having some doubts. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in one of those moments? In Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9 to be specific, we meet a dad. We don't know his name. I wish we knew his name, but we don't know his name. All we know is he's a dad. He's a concerned dad for his son. His son has, we're told, an evil spirit. And this evil spirit is just beating his son down. Just abusing him, taking away his life. We're told that this evil spirit at times throws him into the water, throws him into fire. And his dad is just forced powerlessly to watch this happen, to watch this take place. Doesn't know what to do. And so he sees Jesus, and he knows Jesus has done these amazing things, right? Jesus is this miracle worker. Jesus is able to do things that other people just haven't been able to do. So he goes to Jesus, he says, if you're able, if it's possible for you, can you please help my son? And Jesus says, you'd be amazed at what could happen through belief. And the father responds by saying, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Can you resonate with that? Can you identify with that at all? I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Tonight I want to talk about doubt. I want to talk about doubt. And one of the things that I really want you to hear tonight, and this might be the most important thing I say tonight, one of the things I really need you to hear is this. It is not uncommon, actually it's pretty common, to be honest with you, to experience doubt even in the midst of faith. Doubt doesn't surprise me. For people of faith, for people who are following God, for people who believe in Jesus, it is not uncommon to experience some doubts. But somewhere along the way, we bought into this lie that to believe, to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe means that we have perfect belief, right? That we never have doubts, we never have confusion, we never wonder about things, that belief must be perfect, otherwise maybe it's not belief. Otherwise, maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian, maybe I'm not actually a follower of Jesus if I have these doubts. And I want you to know tonight that that's a lie. It's just not true. I have two problems with, with that assumption. Two very significant problems with that assumption. The first problem that I have with that, with that assumption is this. It's just not biblical. It's not that definition of faith. Faith without any doubts whatsoever. Faith without any confusion. That type of faith just doesn't really exist in the Bible. Tonight we're talking about Thomas. And you know, you know what what is significant about Thomas, right? You know, what is significant about Thomas? Talk back to me. What's significant about Thomas? You just saw it in the video. He was a twin, right? No, actually, he was a twin, the only twin in the New Testament. But no, we, we know Thomas, unfortunately. Thomas, for all time, imagine. <laughs> imagine if you were known for all time, for like thousands of years, if you became known and associated with your biggest failure. <laughs> Poor Thomas. Thomas has been known and is known as Doubting Thomas. Thomas is the one who doubted. 
We, need, we meet Thomas a few different times in John's gospel. Um, we meet Thomas, uh, the first time we meet him is actually in John chapter 11. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating story. Uh, in John chapter 11, Jesus has found out that one of his best friends is sick, named Lazarus. Uh, sick, sick to the point of death. And so Jesus decides, he tells his disciples, we're going to go to Bethany, we're going to go to the home of Lazarus, and we're going to heal him. At that point, Lazarus has actually died. And Jesus, uh, it's an amazing story in John 11, Jesus actually raises him from the dead. But before they go to Bethany, Jesus is having this meeting with his disciples. He says, here's the deal, we've got to go to Bethany, we've, we've, we've got to go there. The problem with going to Bethany is that the disciples know That if they go to Bethany, if they go to the city, Jesus is going to put his life at risk because there are people seeking to arrest him. There are people hunting him down, trying to kill him. So this is a risky move to go to the home of Lazarus. But Jesus says, we're going. You know how Thomas responds? I think the the verse is going to be up on the screen. Can you put the first verse up there? Here's how Thomas responds. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Not an ounce of fear whatsoever. This is Thomas, bold, on fire, passionate. Let's go with Jesus. I don't care if we're going to die. At least we know that we're dying side by side with Jesus. He's ready to face the world. A few chapters later, John chapter 14, we meet Thomas again. Some of that passion, some of that boldness has worn off a little bit. And in John chapter 14, Thomas, is, he's clearly confused by Jesus because Jesus is saying just confusing things as Jesus sometimes does. Jesus is talking about leaving them behind. And the disciples are like, where's he going? What, what is he talking about? He's leaving us behind. They're confused. And so Thomas responds, uh, you can put the next verse up there. Here's how Thomas responds in John chapter 14. Thomas said to him, Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You can hear the confusion and even the frustration in this question, right? Jesus, we don't get it. We're confused. We we don't understand you. Tell us clearly where you're going. Tell us clearly what your plan is. Can you identify with that? Have you ever had those moments following God? Where you just kind of throw up your hands and say, I don't know, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. That was Thomas in John chapter 14. And then we meet him again in John chapter 20. And that's the text that you heard this morning. In John chapter 20. Now, what we we read in John chapter 20 is that for some reason Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when they witnessed Jesus risen from the dead. I really wish that we knew some of the missing information here. I really wish that we knew where Thomas was. I mean, where, where in the world did he have that was better to be than with the disciples witnessing the resurrected Jesus? But I think I know where he was actually. You know where he probably was? He's probably hiding. Because that's what we know most of the disciples were doing after the crucifixion of Jesus. They were hiding for their lives. If they came after Jesus, after all, what's to stop them from also coming after us? So Thomas was probably by himself hiding for his life. Well, the other disciples, they saw Jesus. They witnessed him. And they come and tell Thomas, Thomas, you won't believe what happened. Literally, you won't believe what happened. Jesus is not dead any longer. Jesus is risen from the dead. And Thomas justifiably so. Let's not be hard on Thomas. I mean, imagine that, imagine you're hearing this for the very first time. It's like the disciples and Thomas are living in two different worlds. 
All of a sudden, he has his friends telling him that Jesus, after this torture, after this beating, after this crucifixion, that Jesus somehow has risen from the dead, you wouldn't believe him either. I don't think I would believe him either. And so Thomas is full of doubt. Thomas is full of doubt, and here's what he says. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And actually, that's, that's even a little bit misleading the way that's translated. I did some study on that verse this week. And I discovered when it says, I will not believe, probably a better translation for that would be, I will never believe. I'll never, under any circumstances, believe unless I see it for myself. That's how profound his doubt was. That's how serious his doubt was. His doubt gave way to unbelief. Confusion gives way to frustration. Thomas is standing at the edge here. He's standing at that edge where our doubts lead to rebellion, where our doubts lead to a turning of our back on God. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in one of those moments? Do you know of anybody who's been standing at that edge? The edge where doubts give way to unbelief. I have a couple friends that this has been their story. I have one friend, ironically enough, his name is Thomas. Um, And Thomas is a preacher's kid like I am. He's quite a bit older than I am, but he's a, he's a preacher's kid. His dad was a preacher his entire life. Thomas's dad, the preacher, he died 10 years ago, suddenly, unexpectedly. Because of that event, Thomas has told me he has not darkened the doorway of a church ever since, and now Thomas is a very passionate, very committed atheist. Um, a very uh, uh, loud and boisterous atheist uh, because of that event that happened to his dad 10 years ago. I have another friend named Wendy. Wendy has a similar story in some ways. Wendy lives in Vancouver now, but she grew up in the church, very committed to God, serving in the church, and tragically, unfortunately, Wendy suffered some abuse in her life. She was taken advantage of. And in that moment of weakness and in that moment of... um, uh, uh, risk for her, she wasn't surrounded by love. She wasn't surrounded by uh, acceptance. Instead, people turned their back on her. People in the church even turned their back on her. And because of that experience, Wendy decided to turn her back on God. And now Wendy also is a committed atheist. It's that line, it's that edge that you walk up to with doubt, where your doubts, if you let them consume you, Your doubts give way to unbelief. Your doubts give way to rebellion. But listen, you can look at story after story after story in Scripture. And here's here's one thing that you find consistently all throughout Scripture. People that are used by God, listen to me, this is important. People that are used by God in Scripture routinely go through periods of doubt, confusion, frustration, and even loneliness in their faith. I mean, I could just tack off the list. Abraham, Moses, David, the entire nation of Israel, Elijah, Jonah, 
into the New Testament. You have John the Baptist. Even Jesus himself spends a period of time in the desert being tested. The general rule that you find all throughout Scripture is the people who God wants to use, buckle up. Because there will be a period of testing. There will be a period of doubting. There will be a time in your life that will challenge your faith. That's the pattern that we find in Scripture. What we don't find in Scripture is perfect faith without any struggle, without any trial, without any doubt whatsoever. The challenge, however, again, the challenge is to not be overcome by your doubts. The other reason why I have a problem with this assumption that you could have this perfect faith without any sort of doubt whatsoever, the other problem that I have is that, is that this type of faith the type that never struggles, the type that never doubts, the type that never asks any difficult questions, this type of faith is ultimately a very fragile faith. Okay? So um, let me ask this question. Who among you believes that you did the least amount of stuff during spring break? Raise your hand. Who did the absolute least amount? Nobody's bold enough to raise their hand. Who did nothing? What did you do specifically during spring break that makes you want to say you did nothing? You had your wisdom teeth, so you literally were just laid up in pain, right, the entire week. Can anybody beat that? Did anybody do less than that? Did anybody just lay on their couch the entire week, did nothing but eat Cheetos and play video games? Anybody do that? Now, you did. Congratulations. Well done. You got a lot accomplished during your week. It's all right. Now, how many of us would like our entire life to look like that? where all we're doing is laying on a couch, eating Cheetos, playing video games. Now, you might be tempted, you might be tempted to say, yeah, that sounds like a sweet gig, right? I don't have any difficulties, don't have any, if I want it, I can get it, I just lay around and do nothing. On the surface, it seems like that would be awesome. But think about what your life would look like after a period of time of doing nothing. You'd be miserable, you'd be weak, you'd be fragile. See, a life that's never challenged, a life that never confronts difficulty in any way, shape, or form is a life that ultimately is fragile. And the same is true about faith. A faith that is never challenged with doubt, confusion, and struggle is ultimately a fragile faith. I am more concerned about a student who never has any doubts whatsoever than I am with a student who struggles with doubts in her faith. Because a person who never struggles with doubts is sort of like a stained glass window. Stained glass windows are really pretty and they're really functional, but they're also really fragile. The first time a rock is thrown at a stained glass window, it's going to shatter in a million pieces. And a lot of people have faith that's exactly like that. It's never been challenged. It's never been confronted. It's never even been thought about. A faith that never struggles with doubt is ultimately a very fragile faith. Now let me wrap this up. Let me wrap this up. Let me ask you this question. Is it possible, do you believe, to live a completely morally perfect life? Like, is it possible to live a life where you never make any mistakes whatsoever? Not a rhetorical question. What do you think? Is that possible to live a completely perfect life? No. Of course not, right? That's kind of sort of why we need Jesus, isn't it? Because we do screw up. Every day we screw up. We need Jesus because we're a bunch of screw-ups. Because we're not going to live this morally perfect life. Now, if that's true, if we're never going to live this morally perfect life, what makes you think that you could live this intellectually perfect life too? Where you can know and understand all of the mysteries and complexities about God. 
and never have any concerns, never have any doubts, never have any confusions. Doubt is a reality. A reality that we need to be able to deal with. And I want to give you three things really quick. This won't take long. I want to give you three things, three specific things that you can do when dealing with your doubt. Now, we're not done with Thomas. We're actually going to come back and finish Thomas's story here in a couple weeks. But I want to give you three specific things that you could do to deal with your doubt. The first thing is this. It's up on the screen. How to not be overcome by your doubts. First of all, identify the source of your doubt. Identify the source. Not all doubt is intellectual in nature. Matter of fact, very little doubt is intellectual in nature. Most of the doubts and struggles that we have with our faith and with God actually come from emotional distress. Things happen to us in our life that are out of our control and it causes us to emotionally respond against God. Sort of like my friend Wendy and my friend Thomas. Their their doubts with God didn't start as intellectual doubts. They started with deeply embedded emotional doubts. Sometimes our doubts are emotional. Sometimes they are intellectual. Sometimes our doubts actually have a spiritual origin because we have some sort of unconfessed sin in our life that we're not really dealing with. And that sin is like a festering sore in our lives, taking control, taking ownership of our life. And so that leads to a certain amount of doubt because we have this sin that we're not really dealing with. Or sometimes the source of your doubt is um, stagnation. The reason why you're starting to doubt God is because, honestly, your faith is dead. Your faith isn't active. You're not doing anything to exercise your faith. And so God seems really distant to you because he is distant to you. Because you're not actually doing anything to exercise your faith. So one of the first things I would encourage you to do when you're struggling with doubts, get really honest with yourself. Be brutally honest with yourself. Where does this doubt come from? Is it intellectual? Is it emotional? Is it a spiritual issue? Identify the source of the doubt. Once you've identified the source, then you could better deal with it. Number two is this. Honestly seek out answers. I know way too many people. I I know way too many young people that use their doubts as an excuse for rebellion against God. So because I have these questions about God, because I have these doubts, that justifies me in just turning my back on God and say, forget the whole thing. Your doubts are an invitation to learn more about your faith. Your doubts are an invitation to grow closer to your God. Honestly seek the answers out. That's what I had to do as a freshman in college. I had to buckle down and go to school, and study, and learn, and grow, and seek out the wise counsel of my peers and mentors. Read a good book. Seek out those answers. Matter of fact, next week we're going to have a question-answer time, um, where we're just going to have some time devoted to addressing some questions, addressing some doubts. Third thing, real quick. Third thing is this. Worship and serve. Worship and serve. Do you know anybody... um, (laughs) Do you know anybody that they, uh, they're dating, right? And um, they're having trouble in their relationship. And so they do this. They decide, let's take a break from each other, right? So we're not going to break up. We're just going to take a break, right? We're going to go to our separate corners and we're just going to think about things. Now, what happens in nine out of 10 of those relationships? Be honest, what happens? They break up, right? And you know why? It's a very simple reason, Because that's dumb. 
okay? The way you work out relationship problems is not by taking a time out. The way you work on relationship problems is within the framework of that relationship. When you're having doubts, sometimes the very last thing that you want to do is worship. The very last thing that you want to do is pray. The very last thing that you want to do is go on a mission trip. But I'm telling you, that's the very best thing for you to do. Because it's in the context of worship, it's in the context of service, that we have our faith sort of recalibrated, refocused on what is really real, what is truly true, and what really matters. So the third thing that I would say is, learn how to worship, learn how to serve. Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.